Well, now that we're out of the first quarter of 2021, let me ask you a question. How are those New Year's resolutions going? Has your resolve waned? Is your commitment level to your diet or your workout plan or your new habits as high as it was back in January? I've got to be honest, I don't know that I've ever kept a New Year's resolution for the entire year. Are you with me in that? Maybe you're better than I am. I don't know that I've ever made it through a calendar year keeping a resolution without flaw. I fall off the commitment wagon so easily. My resolve that appeared to be so strong in the, in the beginning ends up looking more like wishful thinking. I'll, I'll get back to, the, to my fitness plan once my schedule winds down. It never does, right? Maybe next week I can read the entire Old Testament to catch up on my Bible reading plan. My willpower often ebbs and flows with my circumstances. And my guess is you're much the same way. Friends, aren't you glad that God's commitment, His commitment level, His resolve is not like yours? Aren't you thankful that His resolve to accomplish His will isn't affected in the slightest by human circumstances? When God makes a promise... When he resolves to accomplish something, nothing in heaven or on earth can stand in his way. That's what makes him trustworthy. That's what makes him God and not us. Friends, this morning we're going to look at two stories from the book of Genesis that showcase God's unswerving, unwavering commitment to keep his promises to his people. So turn with me to the book of Genesis. That's chapter 23 is where we are. Almost midway through the entire book, Genesis 23, it's on page 16 of the Bible underneath your chair. Now, last week, I got a bit nostalgic about saying goodbye to, to Father Abraham. And while Genesis 22 is the last major event in Abraham's life, I think my goodbye was actually a little bit premature because it's actually in Genesis 23 to the beginning of chapter 25 that we actually part ways with Abraham. These chapters form the epilogue, if you want to say, to the story. Now, if you remember, remember back to last week, we looked at Genesis 22. Abraham's faith has come full circle, hasn't it? Through many toils, dangers, and snares, the grace of God has made Abraham a man strong in faith. His faith has not only been proven by leaving his homeland, he passed the ultimate test, didn't he? of fidelity to the Lord. Abraham did not withhold his only beloved son when the Lord commanded him to sacrifice him on the altar. And in response to, the, to Abraham's obedience, we saw last week the Lord confirmed his great promises to him. He would indeed bring about salvation for the world through the offspring, the descendant of Abraham. Well, now we come to the epilogue. In chapter 23, Moses records Sarah's death in a subsequent negotiation between Abraham and these Hittites, these Canaanites, about a burial plot. In chapter 24, Abraham sends his servant off to find Isaac a wife. And then in chapter 25, it's Abraham's turn to die. It's amazing to me. It appears to me as we read this together, as I've studied this week, this week that Abraham's faith has grown and matured. It is now rock solid. He's grown to the place that even in the death of his wife, his faith shines like gold refined in the fire. He trusts in his trustworthy Lord. 
As Abraham's life winds down, the steadfast love and faithfulness of our Lord doesn't. Even as Abraham grieves the loss of his beloved and then works to find a beloved for his son, God proves himself to be as committed to keeping his promises then as he did in the beginning. So let's read together. This is going to be a long one, maybe the longest bit of scripture we've read in a long time. Well, Genesis 24 happens to be the longest chapter in the whole book. So we're going to do our best to work through this. Stick with it. We're going to read it together. Genesis 23 and then most of 24. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the, the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in the presence, in your presence, as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went into the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I, will, I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field which the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, were made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went into the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the field of Canaan, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest in his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac." The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my son from there. 
But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when, when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the son of the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two braces for her arm weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Note that name. We'll, we'll encounter him later in the story. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. And as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to them. There was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. In verses 34 uh, through 48, the servant then recounts to Laban and to Rebekah's family all that we have just read. So we're going to skip that part. Skip down to verse 49. Down to verse 49. The servant is speaking to Rebekah's family. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, 
The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. And let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least ten days, and after that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may offspring and your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went on his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi. Remember, that's the well of the living one who sees me, right? Remember the story of Hagar? He had returned from there and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes when she saw Isaac. She dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. We made it. One commentator that I read this week wrote about these chapters that God wraps a lot of His faithfulness in plain brown packages. In other words, His faithfulness isn't always put on display or maybe even often put on display in the spectacular but rather He reveals His faithfulness in the ordinary, in the everyday circumstances of life, like the negotiation of a burial plot, like an arranged marriage. This morning, we're going to take a flyby over each of these stories. And as we do, here's what I believe the Lord wants us to see. Here's the main idea, the main idea of the text of those two chapters. It's the main idea of this sermon. The Lord's commitment to fulfill His promises should cause your heart to erupt in hope and to marvel at His faithfulness. The Lord's commitment to fulfill His promises should cause your heart to erupt in hope and to marvel at His faithfulness. Two points this morning, each summarizing each chapter. Number one from chapter 23, the promises of God extend beyond the grave. And number two, the promises of God continue by His providence. Friends, I know that was a long scripture reading. I hope you appreciated reading all of those details because it's in those details that we see these very truths about the Lord. We're going to see this morning about our God. These are the truths that should put steel in our, in our bones, so to speak. God's purpose to keep His word, to fulfill His promises can't be stopped by death. 
or by impossible circumstances. And it just so happens that these promises that he is so committed to fulfilling are full of steadfast love and faithfulness to you. So let's look at chapter 23. The promises of God extend beyond the grave. Most of chapter 23 is this negotiation between Abraham and the Hittites about a burial plot for Abraham's wife, Sarah. Verse 1 says that after 127 years of life, Sarah passed away. You know, from several statements in the book of Genesis, just to kind of get your mind oriented, we're able to date Abraham's birth to 2166 B.C., and we, and we know from Genesis 17, 17, that Abraham and Sarah were, were 10 years apart. He was 10 years older. That means that Sarah was born in 2156 B.C. She lived, as the text says, 127 years, placing her death in 2029 B.C. Think about all the Lord had brought Abraham and Sarah through in their lives. Just recall God had called them together out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to sojourn in the land that God had promised them. They left everything familiar to them and they became aliens in Canaan. Together they had walked through barrenness and infertility and waiting for the Lord to fulfill His promise of offspring before Isaac was born. Together, Abraham and Sarah had hatched plans which put the promise In jeopardy, together they had welcomed the the son of laughter into their arms, Isaac, the promised child. By the end of her life, Sarah, like Abraham, was a woman strong in faith. Hebrews 11 says of Sarah, she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah is the mother of us all. And now she is dead. Abraham, according to verse 2, grieved. It seems to describe a period of mourning. His beloved was dead. In verses 1 and 2, look at verses 1 and 2. You see Moses list Sarah's name, and then he mentions her again by name in verse 19. But in between verses 2 and verse 19, she is simply referred to the dead. She is simply referred to as his dead, or by the Hittites, your dead. It's a reminder of Abraham's loss and his grief. Clearly, we're supposed to feel right now with Abraham pain. His beloved is gone. But even more important for our understanding of this text is not just his emotional anguish and his loss, but the fact that Abraham has nowhere to properly bury Sarah. Why? Abraham's a wealthy dude. We know that. He's got riches untold. He's a man of esteem, even in the eyes of the Canaanites. But remember at this point in the story, Abraham is not a permanent resident in Canaan. He owns no property. He is a sojourner, a stranger in the land. God had promised him the land, but at this point, the promise is still completely unrealized. And the death of Sarah exacerbates this point. He has nowhere to properly bury his wife. And so what does he do? Well, he asks the Hittites, some residents of the land, for property. Now, that word property there is significant in a number of ways. 
It really is talking about a burial place in perpetuity. Abraham is not looking for just a plot of ground as a one-time favor, right? Just give me this to kind of, I can kind of have a grave on loan from you. That is not what he's asking for. He is asking for a, a permanent burial plot for generations to come. The second reason this word is important is because it's the same word mentioned in God's promise to Abraham back in in chapter 17, verse 8. Listen to this. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. That's the same word translated property in chapter 23. It's the same word. Now the question is, that I think we should be asking right now. Is Abraham asking for this, this burial plot because he's mindful of God's promise? Or is this mainly just a practical concern about where to bury his wife? What's going on here? Well, I think even in his grief, I'm going to answer it for you. I think even in, in Abraham's grief, his mind and his heart are firmly fixed on the promises of God. And why do I say that? Well, well, three times. Did you notice that? Three times in that story, the Hittites offer to Abraham the burial plot in different ways. And each time Abraham refuses. In verse 6, look at verse 6. The Hittites offer the choicest of their tombs for him to use. Assuming that, like in a borrowing way, but Abraham declines and he asks for the cave of Machpelah that Ephron owns. Abraham doesn't want a loner. (laughs) He doesn't want a loner tomb. He wants a permanent burial spot. Now, Ephron was there in the audience and he stepped forward to give Abraham not only the cave, but the field that was next to the cave. But Abraham, according to 13, doesn't even want it for free. He wants a piece of land. He doesn't want it as a gift. He wants to pay for it. He wants to own it legitimately, fair and square, through the wealth that God had given him. He didn't want to be indebted to the Hittites. We're moving through it quickly. Look at verse 14. Ephron, you notice this? Ephron shrewdly manages to list a price for the field and the cave that was just exorbitantly high. You see that? 400 shekels of silver. That's over 100 pounds of silver in modern day terms. Guys, that's some coin, okay? 400 shekels of silver. To give you an idea, later in the Bible, King David paid one-eighth of that amount for the piece of land to put the temple upon, okay? So this, this price is crazy high. Surely Abraham knows this Ephron dude is, is, is pulling one on him, right? He's taking advantage of him in his grief. Surely he'll haggle him down and barter him down like a good Middle Eastern trade deal, right? But no, Abraham simply shells over the silver. He simply gives it over. God has richly blessed him, so 400 shekels of silver was not a big deal. And then notice a few more details, and then we'll apply its point. Notice how precise this deal is carried off. It's done by the books. Verse 18 or verse 16, excuse me, says that Abraham weighed out the silver right then and there in the presence of witnesses. And then in verse 17, Moses gives this painstaking detail about the property. It's the the field of Ephron and Machpelah to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession. We've got the location. We've got the the exact property, the buyer, the seller, all in these exacting details. And then there's verse 19 that brackets what we learned in verse 1. Sarah died 
in the land of Canaan, we learned earlier in the text, and now verse 19 says, after this, Abraham buried his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Moses is saying, and here's the point, Abraham now owns a piece of the promised land. He has buried his wife in land that he owns. Look at verse 20. It underscores this point. The field and the cave that were in it were made over to Abraham as property. There's our word again. For a burying place among the Hittites. Years later, at the end of another patriarch's life, the Lord brought Moses to the top of Mount Nebo in the land of Moab. And he said in Deuteronomy 32, 49, View the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession. There it is again. There's the word for a property. In other words, this land that Abraham is purchasing, this is the promise of God in motion being fulfilled to him. Right? What's the point? What's the point? I'm saying that this burial plot, this field and this cave and Machpelah represent the whole land of Canaan and the fulfillment of God's promises. It's a small plot of land that is a token of the full promise. It's like, Abra- it's like God is giving Abraham a down payment of this burial plot for the full payment, the full possession to come for his people. It's a symbolic but concrete guarantee that God will make good on his promises. For the first time in his life, Abraham owns part of the land. And yet I think it's important, isn't it, to realize that this land was not for Abraham to build a house upon. It wasn't for him to have a storefront or a business on, right? It wasn't for a ranch for his livestock. Abraham wanted to bury his wife there. Later, Abraham would be buried there in his own possession in the promised land, as would Isaac and Rebekah and Leah and Jacob, even Joseph at the end of Genesis, whose wife was an Egyptian, demanded that the Israelites bring his bones back to this location and be buried there in the promised land. Why? Why? Why is being buried in the promised land so important in this spot that Abraham asked for a piece of the land? Why is it so important that Joseph would insist that his bones be carried back to this spot that Abraham and his family owned? Why? Because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph believed that God's promises extend beyond the grave. That's why. God's promises did not die when they did. Death was not a legitimate obstacle to God's ability to fulfill His Word. Even in death, these patriarchs testified that God's promises will come to pass. The people of God will dwell in the land. And of course, we know that God fulfilled His Word. The end of Joshua He led the conquest of the Canaanites. Joshua 21, 45 says, Not one of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. But friends, I think, I think that there's even more significance here. And you're saying, you're getting this from a negotiation over a burial plot? 
I am. I think there's even more significance to what's going on here. I think Abraham's faith in God's death-defying promise wasn't just about a physical land in Canaan. Think about this with me. Think about this. Just as the burial plot that he bought was God's down payment on the full land of Canaan, I think Abraham understood that the promised land, the land of Canaan, was like the down payment of something much greater. Why do I say that? Well, think about this with me. Abraham knew. Abraham knew that God's promise in the Garden of Eden after mankind fell into sin was what? The offspring of the woman is going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head. The curse is going to be reversed, right? The world is going to be restored back to Eden. Salvation will come through this offspring of the woman. Abraham knew likewise that God had promised him, God had promised him that his offspring would bless the nations of the world. This blessing is going to extend beyond the physical borders of the promised land to the entire world. Abraham knew this. And so I think when he bought this land, he was thinking this parcel of land in the Middle East is like a down payment of God's promise. And God's promise is the down payment of a greater homeland. It's a, it's, it's a down pain of, of something far beyond what we could ask or think. Listen to Hebrews 11. Listen to Hebrews 11. We read this last week in the service. Speaking of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. You see what I'm saying, friends? Abraham, yes, greeted the promises from afar. Yes, he sought after a possession of the promised land. But what he ultimately sought after was a heavenly country, a better possession, the full inheritance. And if Abraham wanted so badly to bury Sarah in a piece of Canaan in order to symbolize this coming promise, surely he believed that God would raise her from the dead one day to see that country. He believed that since his God was the everlasting God, the resurrecting God. She and he and all of their children who walked by faith would be raised from the dead to see the city that God had prepared for them. Friends, this story seems so inconsequential. It seems so like, why is it here? Abraham's overpaying for a burial plot. But it actually means that God's promise extends beyond the grave, that death is not the last word. Beloved, we know from the rest of Scripture that the, that the homeland that Abraham sought is actually a new creation. It's a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We read about it in Isaiah this morning. The wilderness will become like Eden. It's going to be like a new creation. God is literally going to remake the universe when Jesus comes again. Just as He raised the dead in Christ and transformed them, the first fruits of His new creation. We're going to dwell for eternity in this new world. 
You know, on that day, death will die forever. All the sad things in this world are literally going to unravel. They're going to be undone by His power. Every tear will be wiped away. So friends, why would we set our hope on anything else? Don't set your hope upon your health. It will one day decline and you will one day die like Sarah. Don't set your hope on your 401k. You can't take it with you into death. Don't set your hope on the political realm. Politics won't usher in the kingdom. Don't set your hope on anything else in this world other than your Lord, who at the end is coming to make all things new. And if this morning you grieve like Abraham, if your heart aches like Abraham, friend, know that the promises of God are just as secure now as they were then. Jesus has died for sinners. He has risen and He's conquered the grave. He, in His powerful life, is the first edition of the new creation. He's the, the, the representation. He is the resurrection life of the world to come. So friends, sorrow may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. There's a coming a day when the, the, unrelent, uh, the unrelenting ache in your heart will yield to unrelenting wholeness and joy that Jesus will bring. How do I know this to be sure? How do I know? I know because God's in the business of down payments. God's down payment to Abraham was a tomb in Canaan. God's down payment to us is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. God's security deposit to Abraham was a burial plot. God's security deposit to us is His very Spirit who secures our hope with His presence in our lives. So friend, look up. Heaven's morning breaks and death's dark shadows flee. The promises of God extend beyond the grave. Now let's look at chapter 23, or chapter 24, excuse me. The promises of God continue by His providence. As I noted earlier, Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in the entire book of Genesis. And truth be told, I'm just going to confess to you right now, when I first planned this sermon several months ago, I looked at Genesis 23 that we just talked about, and I thought, that's kind of like a, you know, an afterthought, a little bit of a throwaway chapter. And then I got studying it this week. I'm like, oh, no, it's not a throwaway chapter at all. It's massively important. And yet I still press forward to do all, both of these together. So forgive me, but we're going to do an overview of chapter 24 in our remaining time. Did you see the minute an exquisite detail that, that Moses, the narrator, gave us in this story. He wants us to see how entirely a God thing this story is, this arranged marriage between Isaac and Rebekah. Okay, so obviously Genesis 24 follows Genesis 23. It follows on the heels of the death and burial of Sarah. And this helps us to understand the drama of what's going on. Sarah's tent is empty. There's no mother in Israel. Isaac, at age 40, is still single. But remember God's promise. I will make you a great nation, Abraham. 
And so for, for this great nation to come about, Isaac, the only son of promise, needs a wife. No wife, no offspring, no offspring, no Israel, no Israel, no Messiah, no Messiah, no promised salvation. So do you understand the drama of this text now? Will God's promise hit a dead end with the singleness of Isaac? Well, surely not. It didn't hit a, a dead end with the barrenness of Sarah. Surely singleness is no big deal to the Lord. But that's the question that the drama of the story is trying to answer. The story begins with Sarah's tent being empty, and it ends with Sarah's tent being occupied by Rebekah. But in between is this remarkable and stunning story of God's providence at work to continue the promise. Now, before I highlight some things about God's providence here in the, in the story, notice the beginning of the story in verse 3. Abraham makes his servant swear an oath that the servant won't find a Canaanite wife for Isaac. He's, he commands him, he says, swear by an oath under my thigh, like the closest relationship possible, that you're going to find one of my kindred from my homeland back in Mesopotamia, not a Canaanite. Now, why? Now, is Abraham worried that the Canaanite wives will pull away Isaac's heart from the Lord? Well, maybe, but I think the answer to that question is found in, earlier in the story that we've covered weeks ago. Remember back in Genesis 9, after Noah's son Ham disgraced his father Noah? What, it, what happened? Noah pronounced a curse on Canaan, Ham's son, and all of Canaan's children, the Canaanites. So Abraham knew, surely he knew, that the Canaanites were under his curse. And then, in, and, and then in Genesis 15, God hinted at the destruction of the Canaanites again directly to Abraham. So Abraham knew, if my offspring are going to inherit this land, Isaac, my son, cannot be married to a wife from the people that are going to disinherit the land, that are under God's judgment. Notice also that Abraham insists that Isaac not exit the land of promise and go to his wife. He wants the wife to come to Isaac so that Isaac remains in the land of Canaan. Friends, I think this is remarkable, honestly. In both of these instructions, what is Abraham doing? He is protecting the promise. He's guarding it to make sure that the situation is such that it will come to pass in a way that honors the Lord. Think about his past before Abraham was content to lie and to scheme and to manipulate in order to see the promise fulfilled. But now he's guarding it with his life. His faith has grown remarkably strong. Now, from a human standpoint, what Abraham asks his servant to do is just preposterous. It's absurd in its difficulty level. He was to travel 400 miles northeast and find a woman who is related to Abraham and who was willing to go back with his servant to marry a stranger. That's crazy. That's crazy. On its face, it's ridiculous. But remember, friends, the difficulty level of these things is what makes God's promise and His providence sparkle. Right? Remember, He not only makes promises that only He can keep, He fulfills them in ways that only He can do. Okay, just like the previous chapter, we're not going to look at the story in gritty detail, but let's just run through what the Lord did here. First of all, 
look at Abraham's confidence in the Lord's ability to guide his servant. Verse 7. Verse 7. Abraham says, The Lord, the God of heaven, will send his angel before you. Okay, Abraham did not put his confidence in the, his servant's navigation skill or his servant's matchmaking ability, but in the sovereignty and guidance of the Lord. That's right at the start. And then, of course, look at verses 12 to 14. The servant has now made his journey, and he prays to the Lord, and he acknowledges his dependence upon the Lord to guide and to provide. And obviously, he sets up this very specific situation for the Lord to answer in his prayer, right? But then notice the language in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Let the woman who not only offers me water, but also my camels, be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. Oh, the servant is banking it all on the sovereign appointment of God. If he finds a wife for Isaac, it won't be because he's like the ancient version of Match.com. That is not what's going on. It will be because God has appointed her. It speaks of his sovereignty at work. And then, then notice in verse 12 and at the end of verse 14, not only does the servant appeal to God's sovereignty, he appeals to God's covenant faithfulness. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love. Hesed, loving kindness, mercy to my master. It's the covenant love of God. In other words, he understands that God's sovereign appointment will be in faithfulness to his covenant promises to Abraham. God will both prove himself sovereign and full of love. And then verse 15. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking. <laughs> before the prayer was done. Behold, check it out. Look at this. Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. Listen, we know that the Lord answered the servant's prayer. He did answer the servant's prayer. But for Rebecca to appear before the man was done praying means that God was already moving her into place before he started praying. Right? Did he just happen by sheer luck to camp out on the very place that Rebecca would be? Of course not. God was superintending his trip. Did Rebecca just happen by random chance to go draw water at the very time that this man would be at the well? No, no, we're meant to see God's miraculous, providential leading in every detail. Verse 17, the servant approaches the woman and he asks for a drink of water from the well. And of course, we know that Rebecca proceeded not only to give him a drink, but to give water to all of his camels as well. That's amazing to me. I mean, think about this. The, the, the adage, he drinks like a camel, is there for a reason. I mean, camels drink a lot, right? They drink a ton of water. And there were multiple camels. And yet, Rebecca eagerly supplied water for all of them. Over and over, trips to the well. Over and over, giving water to the camels. I think her eager hospitality is supposed to remind us of Abraham. Remember Abraham's hospitality to the three strangers that visited his tent in chapter 18? Moses, or excuse me, Abraham ran to meet them. 
And he provided them the best of his hospitality. And then at the end of the story, fast forwarding here in chapter 24, Rebecca, like Abraham, leaves her homeland to go to the promised land. She is willing to go. And then in verse 60, a blessing is pronounced over her that sounds a lot like the blessing of Abraham in chapter 22. So what am I saying? I'm, I'm saying that, that God had not only led Abraham's servant 400 miles to the exact pinpoint map point that Abraham's relatives would be. He had led him to a woman with exemplary character and a willingness to trust the Lord like Abraham trusted the Lord. It's incredible. Look at verse 21. As, as Rebekah was drawing the water for the camels in answer to his prayer, the man gazed at her in silence. It's like stunned. Is God really doing this? Whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. It's like he can barely contain himself, right? He's forcing himself to be quiet while she works. In verse 22, he almost gets ahead of himself, doesn't he? He's so excited. He, he gets the jewelry and he, he's ready to give it to her. Like the, the, the bride gift. But first he asks, wait, whoa, whoa. Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And then she adds, we have plenty of straw and fodder, and you are welcome to spend the night. Fireworks must have been just exploding in the servant's heart. Shut up. Are you kidding me right now? The chances of this happening from a human standpoint are slim to none. The odds are stupidly low. But God did it. Low odds are, a, are not a category when talking about the Lord and His providence. Because God delights, as we've seen over and over, He delights to, to do the impossible. Over and over again, we've seen that nothing is too hard for Him. I think Moses actually writes this, the story in such a way, friends, that we are supposed to have the same response as the servant in verse 26. I think that's how the story flows. We're supposed to respond with the servant at this moment. The man, the man bowed his head and he worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. The servant's worship sums up what we're supposed to see of the Lord here. The Lord led him in the way. And he did so because the Lord did not forsake his steadfast love and his faithfulness to Abraham. The servant in his prayer had already mentioned the steadfast love of the Lord, but now in his praise, he adds God's faithfulness, his steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, this is the unmistakable language of the covenant. Okay, we read of this in the Psalms in our call to worship this morning. Steadfast love and faithfulness, faithfulness and steadfast love, peanut butter and jelly of the Lord's covenant. They go together. Just enter that into your Bible app, not peanut butter and jelly, but steadfast love and faithfulness. Enter it into your Bible app and just look at all the times that, it's, that they are mentioned together in the Scripture. This is God making good on His promise for no other reason than He is a God of loving kindness, mercy, faithfulness. He makes the promises. He fulfills them. 
He gets the glory for being a God like this. The rest of the story, as they say, is water under the bridge. Rebecca's family welcomes Abraham's servant who tells them the story of how the Lord had worked. And ultimately in verse 58, it's, it's Rebecca who makes the final call about what she wants to do. And she says, I will go. Brothers and sisters, the story of God's providential guidance in order to continue the line of promise, it's beautiful. It's spectacular, but it is not unique. It's not unique. In many ways, this is God's modus operandi. This is his mode of operation. This is how he works. There are no loose strands in the tapestry that God is weaving. There are no loose strands. There are no random events, no circumstances that he did not ordain in order to bring his purposes about. Listen, we sit here this morning in Goodyear, Arizona, across the world, because God led Abraham's servant by his sovereign hand to that day outside Padam Aram. Do you understand that? We are here because of his providential guidance then. In the fullness of time, God led Abraham's servant to, to Rebekah to make a wife, to find a wife for Isaac. But we know that in a billion other ways, God's promise was preserved over history through his providential care. In the fullness of time, Galatians says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. God is meticulous in his sovereignty. We worship today like Abraham's servant of old because at some time in each of our lives, our sovereign Lord providentially led us into the, into the path of another Christian or into another group of Christians, or into a Netflix film that showcased the gospel, or a Christian book, or a passage of scripture, or a radio broadcast, or you name it. There are probably dozens of ways that the Lord providentially guided us into faith. We're here because of no other reason than His steadfast love and faithfulness. We heard the gospel that Jesus died for sinners like us and rose from the dead on the third day to conquer the grave because God led us in the way. That He awakened our hearts by His Spirit and we believed. Listen, if you were to tell each other's stories and, 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 and if we were to sit here and listen to each other's testimonies, that's what I'm trying to say. It might not appear to us, obviously, right, that that, that invitation to church or that Christian working in the cubicle next to you or that flipping through the channels of Netflix, it might not have appeared to you that God ordered it. It might have seemed completely random. But the beautiful truth about God's providence is that nothing is random. Nothing on earth has ever occurred on a whim. We believe as our statement of faith reads that God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. However, God is not in any way the author or approver of sin, nor does He destroy the free will and responsibility of mankind. 
That's how sovereign He is. That's how utterly sovereign He is. And yet in His love, in His love, in His tender compassion, He disposes that sovereignty. He governs all events according to His purposes so that His people might be saved. He reaches down in love to rescue us. So let me, let me ask you, if God has proven Himself this faithful and this loving in our past, this sovereign, both in the Scripture, in church history, in your life, do you not think He is meticulously directing all things toward their purposed end? Do you think that the chaos and the suffering that we see in the world right now are outside the bounds of His control? Do you think that the disintegration of our, of our culture, that we look around and we just see a, a moral abyss, do you think this takes God by surprise? What if instead God is behind the scenes, moving, leading, guiding, superintending, governing all events and all circumstances and all free choices of men in order to bring about His purposes for His people? What about that? So that when we get the glory, when we see Him, we will fall on our face like Abraham's servant and we will bow our head and we will worship and we will say, blessed be the Lord, the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He has kept His promise. The end of the story is beautiful. Rebecca sees Isaac from afar. She covers her face with a veil as was the custom and she met her husband-to-be. Verse 66, verse 66, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I love this. Isaac is not a mere cog in God's plan for the world. He is a hurting person for whom God cares. And even as he missed his mother, God gave him someone to love. It's beautiful, and someone to love him. Chapter 25 draws the curtain on Abraham's life. He remarried, and God continued to bless him. Verse 7, these are the days of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Friends, let the, the Lord's commitment to fulfill His promises cause your heart to erupt in hope and to marvel at His faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. I thank You even seems underwhelming. It seems not enough. We praise You. We marvel at how your sovereignty has directed history, has directed our lives. 
that in the fullness of time you sent forth your Son to redeem us, that you ran us across, you intersected our lives with the gospel when we were going in the opposite way. We wanted nothing to do with you on our own. And yet you reached down and you snatched us, you rescued us by your grace. And you have given us a hope that lasts beyond the grave through Christ. Oh, Father, I pray for those here this morning that may be indeed hurting, that may be grieving like Abraham grieved. Oh, Father, assure them of your love. Cause their heart to erupt in hope this morning, even in their grief. Father, I pray that you would put steel in our bones, as we talked about earlier, and with a firm resolve to trust in you, to marvel at your faithfulness, knowing that you are our sovereign God. Help us this week to trust you, Father, no matter what comes. For some, there may be hard things. For others, maybe it will be an easy week, but we know that it all will be ordained by you. And so we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.